Hey, Nick. Yes? Do you like horror movies? Oh, you know I do. Do you like weird, extreme, taboo, and cult horror movies? Of course. Okay. They're my favorite kind. Well, I've got some news for you. Because MVD Entertainment Group and the popular Rue Morgue magazine have teamed up to launch the Midnight Movie Society. What? Yeah. They are a curated subscription video on demand service specializing in extreme underground, taboo, and cult horror movies. Now, genre fans can gain access to a film library of shocking underground, outrageous gore, creature features, cult classics, and much more. Those with a taste for the weirdest and wildest reaches of genre cinema will not be disappointed. The bigger platforms are catering to the masses and have gone puritanical in many cases, making it very difficult for filmmakers to reach their audiences, says Ed Seaman, COO of MVD Entertainment Group. MVD has a great deal of this type of content, and when it is live on major platforms, it performs really well. Maybe too well for some of the mainstream platforms. The Midnight Movie Society will also cater to more traditional horror fare as well, pulling from the thousands of film hours from in MVD's vast catalog. In addition, Rue Morgue will also be finding and curating fresh and unusual content for the service. Adriana Dober, director of programming, says as larger streaming platforms continue to crack down on content, there's an urgent need to create a space for boundary-pushing films unencumbered by strangling content restrictions. That I don't know why that word was so hard for me to <laughs> strangling. say. Strangling. Strangling, especially given the content. As a lifelong horror fan, I'm proud and excited to be working with MVD Entertainment Group and Genre Champions Rumor Magazine to bring Midnight Movie Society to the masses. Rumor Magazine is a name that everyone can trust. It's actually a horror magazine I used to buy back in the day, and they're Canadian, so you know they're extra fucking weird. And nice. Yeah, and nice. Best of all, Midnight Movie Society is supplying all of our amazing listeners with an opportunity to get on board and try the service out for themselves. If you go to www midnightmoviesociety.com you can save 33% off your first three months of Midnight Movie Society by using the promo code SHAMELESS SHAMELESS! SHAMELESS! We have our own promo code! Yes, you heard me, you will save a whopping 33% on your first three months. That's just insanity to me. So, once again, go to www.midnightmoviesociety.com and use the promo code SHAMELESS S-H-A-M-E-L-I-S-T Shameless. No spaces. No spaces. All one word. Shameless. It's like you're yelling it at someone. Yell it at the promo code, but also make sure you type it in. Yeah, I re. Yeah, I, I re. Um, I re-listened to your to your one to your one on on um Gone with the Wind, and then I re re um listened to your one on the Blues Brothers. So I kind of have. I I still surprisingly like that Gone with the Wind episode. It's it's good. When, it's we, good. We don't normally yeah. get that studious, but like it, it's it was certain <laughs> movies you kind of have to because like you listen to Gone with the Wind and you listen to Blues Brothers, and the way that we tackle both of those episodes is so very different. Right. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. But you sure. know, I think it. Uh, I like both of those episodes, and Blues Brothers was chaotic because had so many people. Right. Right. Yeah. It was nice to and hear like, Amanda. <laughs> Yeah, it was, you know, three people in the room, and then Nick uh, through Skype, and then I had to get, like, a headphone splitter so we could all hear him, and then uh, I had my friend Kyle there recording us all because he had more microphones. (laughs) 
So that that was a that was a crazy episode. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about, Jordan, before we got to the topic? Oh gosh. Um. Oh, I just had anything. A, I just had a technical question. So yeah. So when so do you so I know like when like in like the like you have clips of audio from the actual films in yeah. the podcast. Do you do that all post? Yeah. And then okay, okay. That's, that's I've tried to find ways to like make it work or I could like there have been times where I'm like, Nick, there was this piece of music I really liked. He's like, Oh, I don't remember it. So I'll, like I'll find it on my phone and put it up against the microphone oh, yeah, yeah, so you yeah, can yeah. hear yeah. it. But like the clips and everything, I just kinda I try to time it out for like a moment where it feels appropriate, where there's a, a, a silence, and and I, I pick and choose. Sometimes I think it's funnier if like we're talking about a scene and uh, and I don't play the clip. And there's sometimes where like I, I think it's better when I play the clip. Like I don't want to play the clip every single time you mention a scene. It, it's there's a balancing act with it. Okay. Okay. But no, I and like as much as I can, it, it's hard. Some of it comes down to usually because I I I'm the one I do all the editing pretty much for this show. Though Nick does all the video versions. We play it. We we're on public access in Maryland. Oh damn. <laughs> So he he edits all the video versions because he's the station manager, but I do the audio versions. And I, I more than anything, I love when I can find a piece of like film analysis or film theory or something on what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But it, it's usually hard because it takes a lot of digging. Right, right. And with the schedule, I'm sometimes on to cut these. I don't. So it's like, you know, like, for example, for Moonlight, I'd love to, like, if we're talking about a certain scene, get clips of Barry Jenkins talking about it. Oh, yeah. But yeah. then I'd have to weed through sometimes 30 to 50 minute interviews and find the exact spot. And it's it's good in theory. It's just sometimes hard in practice. Like, yeah. I, we did our Godfather episode. I spent an hour and a half trying to find Coppola talking about something specific. And I couldn't even find it. Yeah, <laughs> so, I mean, like, so sometimes I, mean, I try to do the research ahead yeah. of time, but I can't always. The nice thing about Moonlight is that Barry and Carol McCraney, who wrote the the on the piece that's based off of, have been like prolific in terms of like talks. Like I think, like I think, I like there's so many interviews that they've given, both written and video, that like if you want, like like if you need. If you absolutely like want something, I can I can probably oh, find I, it. I definitely yeah. do, yeah. and I've listened to him talk a little bit, and I love how eloquent he speaks on visual matter. So I'll, oh, I'll yeah. talk about this in, in the film itself, but I'm I'm going to talk about it in terms of generalization. I I was talking to a friend very recently, and I noticed this with a lot of uh, online film critics. I'm not going to name anyone by name, but I've just it's a trend I've seen. So me and you've talked about this. Film in itself is a visual medium. And I noticed Barry Jenkins specifically thinks about that. He's very good with what is what are my visuals saying? What is my image saying? Mm-hmm. What am I trying to convey through an image? Right. But yet I've 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 read so many critics online who like who are just so plot focused. Right, right. Have you ever noticed this yourself? It's like me and my friend Josephine were talking about this. Like, Some of them feel like they should be reviewing books because they don't talk about the music. They don't talk about the images. They don't talk about what the images mm. are trying to say. Right. They're just like, yeah. here are the mm-hmm. plot points, and I didn't like the plot because of this. It's like, And sometimes I just want to be like, plot and story are two different things. Right, right. Don't focus on the plot. What's the story? Right, right. And that's cinema, right? It's that it's that story and the visuals. It's like um I think that he, I think that he actually like I was listening like it was a while ago and he was talking about that and and like he's like, "Yeah, well like it was um actually um Terrell um the screenwriter and like he's like, 
when I wrote the original piece, it's not it's not like he's like it's not actually a play, which most people say that's a play, but it has these visual. It's almost written as a film script where like he's very visual and he's like the only medium that like Barry like took it like because it's like it needed to be a film. It like it couldn't be any it couldn't be any other medium with with yeah. what, with what, how he wrote it and so. Yeah, I think that's and really true. Yeah, I think about this all the time. It's like, especially when when it comes to film, the visuals came visuals came first. Talk, words came second. Mm, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. I feel yeah. like there's a lot of filmmakers, film fans, a lot of people who could learn a lot from not only silent films. And I can get why some people don't like silent films because they can be, they can feel very hokey. But there's so much you can learn about visual storytelling. And I just it was an annoyance I had recently where I was reading some people, especially like things on Twitter and whatnot where it's like you know, well if I don't like the story it's being told, I don't I don't like the movie. And for me it's like if I lose interest in the story, I start looking at everything else. There's a whole right. frame there. Mhm. Mhm. Like, I used to keep movies, in college, I used to keep movies on in the background, with, muted, and just watch, like, when I was doing things, I just watch the frame, watch the image. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, um, a little bit of a tangent there, but that's right. what this show's about. This yeah, show's about great, talking about right, film. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, let me just get some water first. I gotta get in the character. <laughs> Amanda's actually said it's funny listening to me on the show, because she's like, it's you. But it's you heightened. <laughs> it's just like, it's you playing a character of yourself. Oh, gosh. Warning! This movie podcast actually discusses movies. Be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements. Endings, surprise twists, unexpected cameos, and all manner of spoilers. If this doesn't appeal to you, why listen to a movie podcast? Without further ado, please enjoy our feature presentation, The Shameless Picture Show. Hello and welcome to... Ooh, that peak. Let me do that again. Let me turn down my game just a little bit. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Shameless Picture Show. I am Michael Virus, and with me today is a very special guest and a person I've wanted on the show for some time. My original movie buddy, Jordan Davis. Uh, Jordan has been one of my best friends since high school and is now working towards his master's degree in anthropology at the University of South Carolina with a concentration in archaeology. He'll be specializing in African-American and African... Dias- How do you pronounce that word, Jordan? Um, um, diaspora. Yeah it's, a, uh, yeah, it's a little bit of mouthful. I, I, was tr- I was trying to sound it out. Disapora is the way you put it. You wrote it in your text. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, yeah, so it could be diaspora, African diaspora, or, or like diaspora. diasporic. Um, okay, I might have, I also might have spelt it wrong when I was typing it. So, <laughs> no uh, African diasporic studies. <laughs> this is a new word for me, so I'm glad that you'll be able to explain here what it is for a second. But no matter how many fancy degrees you get, or how many <laughs> big words that your 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 dumb little friend at home can't pronounce, oh he'll gosh. always be the guy that I saw every single, almost every single movie with. And the guy that I openly cried with during Perks of Being a Wallflower. <laughs> oh gosh, I think we both cried during that. Film. We were we were both a wreck during that movie. <laughs> oh, and for I remember sure. it was funny too because like a, a bunch of like the popular girls from high school were, were were at the same theater seeing it. They're like, 
you guys can't see Perks of Beauty and Wallflower together. We both have like tears down our faces. Like, yes, we're right. just alone. <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh. I, oh my gosh. I remember that because they were like sitting like behind us. Two, two rows like, behind us. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We're at the I remember budget that. theater. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about what you're studying, Jordan, because obviously I was struggling even to say it and it's a new word for me. So I want to know a little bit more about this and um and maybe even give a little bit of context of um who you are a little bit oh yeah sure sure um so i'll be starting my graduate studies in anthropology which is a broad discipline um inside the united states um archaeology is actually a part of anthropology and so it also includes like just um ethnography which is like the interpersonal like study of culture um linguistics um, which deals with language, and then also um, biological anthropology, which you might have seen some, um, like, CSI, like, forensic anthropologists. Yeah. yeah, so they don't call them that usually, but that's what they are. It's like they're forensic anthropologists. Um, and so, um, specifically, um, I focus on the archaeology of um, historical archaeology, which, which is mostly... Um, concentrated with time periods that are that are more recent um and so not kind of and so they use um written records oral histories sometimes photographs if you um if it's within the recent um more recent past and so it and so specifically within that african-american um archaeology deals with um, sites of sites of um, enslavement inside the U.S. Um, after emancipation, um, like um, African American homesteads, um, 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 like historic buildings that you might have in in different parts of the U.S. Um, hmm. And then African diaspora or African diasporic archaeology is particularly um, the study of African peoples um, outside of Africa. Um, and so when you think of diaspora, mostly, mostly that's mostly associated, um, 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 with like the Jewish diaspora, which it's like, oh, Jewish people, they have a, they have a homeland, but then they're dispersed throughout the world. And so yeah. same kind of concept with, with Africa, with African, with the African diaspora, it's the study of people outside of, um, African people outside of Africa. So that could be. Africans um, in Jamaica, Cuba, South America, um, in um, Southeast Asia, just kind of wherever, wherever we end up. <laughs> um, but um, mostly, it's focused on the period after the slave trade. Um, so. Okay. And I realized why I was struggling to say it. I had an extra S in there. Oh. So <laughs> I, I had it written as diaspora, and I was like, that doesn't sound like a real word. <laughs> um, so once you have your master's degree in this, what what exactly will that entail? Like, what would you be doing? Yeah, um, yeah. So um, that's so that's a really good question. Um, so there's definitely the teaching route. Um, I could um, become a university professor at some point, um, but then there's a whole host of other organizations that um, from museums that study African American. Um, history and culture that I could work at, um, government agencies, um, because any kind of, um, like national parks, any state land that has, um, the how that have, um, certain sites, um, with African-American history that 
they need archaeologists as managers of those resources. And so, um, like those kind of sites, um, I've seen a, a couple of archaeologists teach at the like K through 12 level. Um, it's less, um, um, it's less common. Um, I think that Shorewood High School in Milwaukee actually has an anthropology teacher, which is, I'm like, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> yeah, but of course Shorewood, if you know anything about Shorewood. <laughs> um, um, yeah, but it's kind of um, a couple of different options um, that I'm still trying to work out um, for sure. See, always in my brain, I always just pictured you being Indiana Jones. <laughs> well, see, Indiana Jones is an interesting character within the field of archaeology because his... Um, is like it belongs in a museum <laughs> and most archaeologists would be like no it belongs in the ground you don't take stuff and put it into museums anymore that's like kind of like our well to be poor fair those movies past. took place in like the 40s right 40s or 50s <laughs> so it's like you know at that point in time sure <laughs> right right <laughs> there should be a reverse indiana jones where it's like it belongs in the ground and it's about him stealing from you from museums <laughs> to put them back that would be that would be an interesting film for sure for sure it'd be very backwards <laughs> that's always jordan it's always been you've always fascinated me about your, your fields of study because for the for the longest time i couldn't even keep it straight because like it was always based i remember because when you first went to college it was you're studying the blanket of history yeah mm-hmm. and then you mm-hmm. you through your missionary work and all the other things you've done you found kind of your path in these really interesting ways and it's it's you're one of those friends too that like it doesn't even bother me that I don't get to see you as much. It bothers me because it's sad, but like <laughs> you're always out. Like me and Amanda joke that you're always out saving the world or doing something or traveling and doing all these really cool things. So I'm so I'm glad you're able to like make like an hour or two for me to sit here and talk about movies. Oh no no um <laughs> um let me tell you it's definitely been a lot less straight and of a straightforward journey. Um, I definitely, <laughs> um, um, I, I truly appreciate that we've been able to stay friends for all this time. Um, and just, I wish that we could, I mean, at some point we will collaborate on something, on some project. I mean, I know I have a credit in one of your films for flashing some lights in the car at a motel, <laughs> yes, but, <laughs> but, but, um, but um, we'll definitely have to, have to, have to work together into the future too. But, but thanks for having me on. I mean, no problem. I mean, I think that we'll make... film, we, I mean, we bonded over film when we were younger and a part of me is like, gosh, like, like, why didn't I go like, like, like I love film, but I think I'm, I'm, I love stories and history and archaeology are my way of getting to stories that I want to explore. So, so I think yeah, we're somewhat kindred you know, spirits. The... In its own way, that could even lead to film because one day they might need someone who's just who's got the knowledge for that. And like realistically, when it comes down to it, like that was one of the reasons I wanted to have you on because it's like, well, you you aren't you don't have a background necessarily in film or filmmaking or film criticism. You've always loved it, and then you can still tackle it from a place that for your own personal experiences, which I I've always appreciated. Uh, you know, because sometimes the 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 issue you can sometimes run into with talking film with film people is you're always going to have a film person perspective Mm. sometimes it's interesting to get someone who likes film who knows quite a bit about it but isn't necessarily a film person can come in from a different point of view oh sure sure so but uh without burying the lead much longer uh with the world 
with the way the world has been of late, I've wanted to tackle more black films on the podcast, but I didn't want to do it without some sort of context behind it. I think I jokingly said to you, we didn't want to seem like two white woke guys who are just, you know, talking about black film because it's topical. Like, I, I wanted to talk about these films, but I wanted to have someone who's a little, who has a little bit more to say about it than just me. Uh, so I've asked a few interested parties to join us for a couple episodes and to pick films they feel they could speak about. So <clears throat> on today's episode, we'll be discussing Barry Jenkins' Oscar-winning film, Moonlight. Moonlight is a coming-of-age film broken into three distinct acts about a young black boy's life in the rough neighborhood he lives in. The film follows a young boy named Sharon from the ages of 6 to, I believe, roughly 26, as he deals with his own sexuality, the idea of what it is to be a man, and the fears that come with not only adolescence, but with being a closeted homosexual in a world that looks down upon them. When we first meet Sharon, is it, I can't remember, is it Sharon for pronunciation? Um, it's like the film, it's, it's, um, Chi- it's Chiron. 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 Okay. Yeah, but it's, but it's based off of a Greek Greek myth- mythological character I just found out a couple of couple of All days right. ago. So. so we first meet Chiron, aka Little, as he's running from a group of bullies. Without thinking, he hides within a rundown building that's be- once being used as a drug den. A kind-hearted man named Juan finds the boy and is adamant on getting him home safe. Juan becomes a father figure to the small child and must deal with his own struggles of being a good role model for this child and being a well-known drug dealer. This conflict is a big part of what makes Moonlight, in my opinion, a masterpiece, the, the duality of people. Moonlight would go on to not only to not be not only a financial success, but a critical success as well. It holds a solid 88% in Rotten Tomatoes and would be considered by many, including the, the New Yorker, to be one of the best films of the decade. Moonlight would also go on to win a lot of awards, among them the Golden Globes, where it received six nominations with one win, and was nominated for eight awards at the Oscars with three wins, including Best Picture. A couple interesting facts about that. For both the Golden Globes and the Oscars, they were nominated for the most films of all time at the point at that point. Mm. Um, and then while we, we both agree we don't really want to linger on this, it is important to mention, while the film was... While the film's Oscar win was shrouded in controversy, it was a historic win for black cinema, and Moonlight should never be viewed in the shadow of another film. Moonlight was written and directed by Barry Jenkins, based on the play, apparently not quite a play, but a play called In Moonlight, Black Boys Look Blue by Terrell Alvin McCraney. The film features beautiful cinematography by James Laxton and a vibrant score by Nicholas Bertel. The film stars Trevante Rhodes, Ashton Sanders, Alex Hibbert, Andre Holland, Jarrell Jerome, Jaden Piner, Naomi Harris, Janelle Monet, and Mahershala Ali as Juan, the father figure of Sharon. <laughs> what you, you looking at me like that for? What, man? Come on, you just drove down here? Yeah. Where's you, Sharon? Come on, son, try not to remember. Try to forget all those times. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you're gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. You all talk about 
tell him why the other boys kick his ass all the time. What's wrong? I'm good. No. I just seem good. And you ain't it. Remember the last time I saw you? Listen. To who, Ma? Huh? To you? Who is you, man? I ain't seen you in like a decade. It's not what I expected. What did you expect? Typically, as is customary on the show, when someone hasn't seen the film, we get their perspective first on what they thought about the film. Mm. I think a little bit different. I like what I like to do when I have guests is because I always want the guest to pick the films that we discuss. I think it's a little bit more fun than here's what we're talking about. Do you have anything to say? I think it's mm. it says more. Uh, usually, the guest will have a little more to say if it's a film that they specifically wanted to discuss. So you originally didn't want to do the show, not because you didn't want to do the show, because you were afraid that you might not have much to say about. A specific film but then you came back to me about a week later and said you changed your mind and you did want to discuss moonlight what made you change your mind and what made you choose this film gosh um i think i think it's um part of the reason that's it's um i mean with our current with our current moment there's a lot of pressure on just um black people in general to to kind of be somewhat subject experts on all things racism, black race relations, um, history of oppression, other things. And so I, I was originally, I was like, Hmm, let me pick another film that doesn't have to do anything with blackness because I'm not sure if I want to, um, have to speak on that. Um, but then I was going, understandable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then I was going through, um, my favorite films and I just kept on coming back to why am I like, like I can speak to, I, I have loves of other films, but there was just something about Moonlight that I'm like, if I have a chance to talk on this, it, it, I probably, um, I probably should just because I think it has so many layers, um, and so much complexity that you can't really reduce it to, oh, it's just a film about race. It's just a film about um, queer sexuality. It's not just a film about poverty. It's not a film about about um, drug addiction or mother-father relationships or, or, or sorry. Um, and so I think for that reason, because of its complexity and how much the filmmakers put into it, I think that that's what drew me to want to talk about it. Yeah. And- and you you touched on something that I that gravitated with me too because it's, um, it is a film from the black perspective about black characters, but there was never really a point where I really thought it was about race. Mm-hmm. It's you know it's it's about the human condition. Race plays a factor, but it's not like so. Like one of my favorite films from last year was a movie called Queen and Slim, which mm. I loved, and it's almost got this fairy tale aspect to it. And that film really is about race. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's about many things, but race plays a big part into it. Um, and what you know, it's a black film 
about many things, but race being one of them. This is a black film where race is an aspect, but that's not what the film is about. Mm. And I thought mm. that was that was uh, uh, fascinating because this was a first time watch for me, it, and it wasn't the lack. It wasn't like me avoiding the film or anything. It's just uh, when that year for the Oscars, it's like oh, I really need to see that. I really need, and I, I, for whatever reason, I kept forgetting about it mm. or. Um, uh, various reasons and it's like you know i just i mean and i was also waiting for amanda and she still hasn't gotten a chance to see it because i had to watch it when she was at work uh and so it just kept getting pushed on the list because we also didn't know how heavy it was gonna be and usually since amanda works like 10 hour days it's like you know do we want to watch something that could just be very emotionally heavy and this film in in a very beautiful way just every scene kind of just drips of this agony Mm. but mm-hmm. in, like, in this very beautiful way where it's 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 heavy but i don't feel like i was i didn't feel like i came out on the other end having just experienced this big ordeal uh but i i, I have not been able to get images from this movie out of my head yeah yeah no i mean i had I, um i had a very similar reaction i think it's i think there's certain parts into the movie where where yeah that agony definitely you I know, but you feel it in so many ways, but then just how it's shot, just the aesthetics, just like the city of, I mean, Liberty City, that part of Miami, when they show it on the film, I mean, it's, I mean, there's, there's a beautiful aspect to it. And I think it's like that, that play of like, I mean, you can feel that the filmmakers, it's not like, oh, we're returning to, to this place to, because it's this horrible place that we escaped from and stuff like that. It's like, they definitely have a love for that neighborhood yeah. and for that area, it's, which I think you can only have if you don't see it in kind of a strict, like, this is, like, this is hell on earth. Like, I don't think that they, at least it comes across that they don't feel like it's that. Yep. You know, it's, it, it feels to me like, because you can definitely feel the love. They weren't, they weren't, they were, they were being truthful about the, this, this area, but they weren't necessarily like demonizing it. And so there's a, a, a kind of a subgenre of independent film called regional cinema, mm. where it's usually regional filmmakers, say like from Texas or whatever, making a movie in their town with, you know, lots of unknown actors or local actors and just kind of shooting a film from their perspective of what this area is like. Richard Linklater is a perfect example. Oh, yeah, yeah. And this feels like a regional film because it it does have this this kind of love for this 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 area they live in this this you know rough area but it's shot so beautifully and you almost get to see it warts and all the way that they they perceive it and there's the scene i'm kind of jumping around here as we do on the show um you know the infamous beach scene but mm-hmm. what they what I find so telling about that scene is when they talk about when uh, Sharon mentions the the wind when it when it comes to the I think he said when it comes to the hood, it's it just overtakes them and it's like that's just a really beautiful way to describe the area you live in that you know no matter how bad it can get there's things that are that you love and that are good. Yeah, yeah, no, I think yeah, that's definitely. Um... Yeah, I love that scene, um, and just the way that they um, they speak about that duet, um, that complexity about the abject poverty, but then also mm-hmm. like 
like the beauty of the ocean and the and the wind just carrying and i think that that's like where yeah it's it's not a movie it's not a film strictly about race but you can kind of get a sense i mean i mean when you look close enough there's this there's there's these moments where where the external world in which they're in and the pressures that that impact their lives it's it's almost like inexplicit in some ways where like you're like oh like this is set um in the 1980s and 1990s so you know that there's the war on drugs you know that there's this image of the welfare queen you know that there's um that there's the ramping up of of of, of um gay visibility and the AIDS crisis and so you know that there's all this stuff going on and they touch on it in very subtle kind of kind of ways but it doesn't but there's not like an explicit conversation that like any of the actors have about oh yeah so 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 Chiron he um they don't talk about the school to prison you know but pipeline and but Mm -hmm. you see it you see that yeah you, you see that inside the film. And so I think that that's like where, like where it kind of, whereas you would have another film that explicitly kind of talks about these themes and talks about race. And there's a, I'm, I'm not trying to um, speak down on those films because I definitely think that there's a, a space for that in black filmmaking and black cinema. But I, I truly appreciate the ways that he weaves that in, but you still stay on that specific, like that specific person and their life story and see how, all of these structures and systems kind of impact their lives. I think that that's what, what drew me to the film a lot. And what I love about it too is, is you see, so Chiron is in the three points in his life is three very different types of characters mm. and you can kind of see how he get how he got to where he's at and how Kevin kind of got to where he was at and I just keep thinking back to the theme of the film which uh you know six-year-old Kevin says very eloquently you can't let them think you're soft mm. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what you're funny man why you say that just is that's all Why you always letting people pick on you, man? What you mean? You always letting them pick on you. So, what I gotta do? All you gotta do? Show these niggas you ain't soft. But I ain't soft. I know, I know. But it don't mean nothing if they don't know. Come on. You want these fools to pick on you every day? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And that line just kind of radiated with me in the film. Um... Because it, you, I almost feel like uh, those words were, he took them to heart, and they are kind of like haunting him in a way where it, I feel like that wasn't constantly in the back of his mind, any choice or decision he made. And maybe I, someone else would read it differently, but I, I love the mannerism, especially once we got to um, the middle section of the film with uh ashton sanders who i think should be a way bigger name in in film right now (laughs) yeah yeah Um, he's fantastic he's he's been i've only seen him in two things but he was phenomenal in both things um he um just the way the really buttoned up way that he played that role where it's i don't i feel like it even goes beyond just being shy where it's just like insecure Mm, mm mm-hmm 
Um, and I just kept thinking, is like, it's it's like when you're a kid and, you know, someone like makes a comment on your appearance or the way you're doing something, the way you walk. Um, I remember when I was a kid, I had an uncle, a really kind of shitty person, who uh, one time told me, it's like, oh, you walk like a girl. And I, that stuck with me. And then I actively changed the way I walk because I was thinking about that. And then I was just wondering, it's like, I wonder if that's how Chiron took those comments. You can't let them think you're soft because everything that he kind of does from that point on is to kind of show that he's not, despite the fact that, you know, Juan in the first part of the film is showing him the softness and that he can be both. Right, yeah, which, I mean, the character of Juan is is so, he defies a lot of expectations because you think, because how um, how black male masculinity in general, but then black, black men as drug dealers, I mean, you're not expecting that, I mean, like, for, like, that first whole segment where he finds Chiron inside, um, inside the dope house, and then he takes him back, and I'm like, oh, gosh, like, He's going to, um, he's going to fold in Ch- Chiron, and Chiron's going to become like a drug runner, or he's going to be involved in this in some way. But it doesn't turn out like that, and he's just like this nurturing kind of takes on this like father figure mantle, and you can see like in so many scenes like 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 how Juan is conflicted about what he does um, um, on so many levels, um, um, but then you have this space where I think like McCraney um, throughout the piece, like he talks about it. It's like, it's like black, it's like black men being loving and being tender and intimate with other black men is like revolutionary. It's like, it's not something that where that society gives us the space to do. And I think that that you could say that that extends to, western society and men in general it's just that you're not you're not able to it's that certain emotions for and before men and relationships between men are not supposed to happen and so i think that in that way it's like it it definitely defies a lot of it definitely like unsettles a lot of stereotypes um yeah and and one thing i love too is i love that this film is is not afraid to be silent it's not afraid to be quiet. <laughs> mm-hmm. They'll allow characters to not have an answer. Like, and I think that is shown so well in in scene two, where you especially get to see the the struggle that Juan has is when he catches Chiron's mom freebasing mm-hmm. in the car, and he gets really up in arms, and then his mom defends herself. And says, well, you're the one who sold it to me. And he doesn't say anything. And and she uh and she's like, and don't play that, you know, I'll I'll you'll you'll have to get it from somewhere bullshit, or however the scene plays out. And he doesn't say anything. And I feel like lesser movies or other I don't want to say lesser movies, other movies would instead have him give his perspective on the world and be like, well, I have to do it because of this, Mm. or this is the reason I'm in this place. This is the reason I'm doing this. This is the reason why I've got the moral high ground over you or some shit like that. And instead, the way that um, uh, Mahershala Ali plays it, he knows. 
that he's a contradiction. He knows that what he's doing is wrong, and he doesn't try to defend himself. He sits there and takes his lashes. He sits there and, and just takes the verbal abuse because he doesn't have it. He doesn't have a comeback. Yeah. And I love when a movie allows its characters to be wrong. Yo, nigga, what's up? Hey, 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 it's all good, man. What the fuck you doing? It's all good, Juan. Fuck up. It's all good. You got the hey, fucking look, car. Calm, calm down. You shut man. the fuck up. What's wrong with you? Who the hell you think you is? Huh? Bitch, get the fuck out of here. What's it? You gonna raise my son now? Huh? You gonna raise my son? Yeah. That's what I thought. You gonna raise him? You gonna keep selling me rocks? Huh? Motherfucker. Don't give me that. You gotta get it from somewhere, shit nigga. I'm getting it from you. But you gonna raise my son though, right? Hmm? Mm, yeah, I think yeah, I think that's um that's something that that um I really appreciate about about the film because so often you either have you you don't have a lot of space for for for, for black characters in movies. It's either they're pathologies, they're they're the they're degenerate or stereotype or or stereotypes or they're infallible. And it's like they're like these savior kind of like asking like they're like these perfect perfect people who are who are emblems of racial uplift and they've transcended race or they've made it and like they don't and like they're and they're pinnacle people and 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 I think that they really play with that that you have it's just messy life is just messy and you don't have and when you focus so and when you get to that specificity of the human condition and in this case the um, the black condition, it's that you have that messiness. It's that, yeah, he's going to be conflicted about his roles. He's not necessarily, I mean, he might have a sense of like where he has, like where he has a moral compass and where he's making moral judgments, but we're not all that articulate in real life when confronted. Um, and I like no. that. We're, we're like, no, he didn't have I mean, maybe he did have a response in that moment, but he didn't share it, or maybe he did. I think, but like that ambiguity, I love. I I love that ambiguity, and um, I think that that comes up in the in the following scene where um where um he's confronted by Little at the kitchen table. I mean, that scene mm -hmm. with um Mahershala, it it it's just. I mean, that I mean that scene is like one of the most like heartbreaking scenes to me inside the film. Um, yeah, like it's um and it's it's even more sad because like that's the last scene we get with him as well. And right. we never we never know what their we don't know what their relationship is like after that. We know he's there in each other's lives. We know that uh Juan has a big impact on uh Chiron's life. That's the last scene we get with him. Right. And right. <clears throat> and you know, he's it, it's then Juan's out of his life because he, he he gets killed. And we also don't know what point in Chiron's life that happens. You know, we don't know if it's the next day. We don't know if it's five years from there. We don't know. We don't, we have no clue when it happens. And mm -hmm. 
what their life would have been like after that because it's actually i find it really fascinating too and i almost wonder if it happened when chiron was young still because through the rest of the film teresa mentions juan but chiron doesn't mm. he, he or if he does he, he it's very um passive yeah. he doesn't really yeah. have much to say about him yeah, that's a yeah, that's yeah, that's a really good question about when when his death actually occurred and how that impacted him because I could because it's it definitely does does not seem like it's like it's recent even when his mother um um Naomi Harris's character Paula when she kind of um when he returns to the house and she's um and she's looking to get back into the house to get um um to get high and to get her money and stuff and then she's like and then she flippingly, like flippantly, um, mentions Teresa. And, like I haven't seen her since the funeral. Like it seems like it's been a mm-hmm. while. Um, um, but then, how long is that? Um, how long is that? I mean, it goes to this question of time inside the film, which is so complex because because um, listening to an interview um, with um, with McCraney about the original piece is that the three is that the three chapters or if you're calling them that um went simultaneously and it wasn't until the middle of his writing that you figure out that they're that little that the three kind of protect well that the protagonist is the same person which barry jenkins decided to structure it in more of a chronological um sequential order um, um, um when he adapted the when he adapted the original sort and of the source material which is and actually speaking of that i i heard an interesting little bit with barry jenkins talking about that and he specifically did, said he did not care that none of the actors who played Sharon looked alike. What was the approach that you went in mm-hmm. to casting, especially considering the fact that for some roles yeah. you had to cast three people? When I decided the structure that I was going to tell the story in these three chapters, uh, right away I was like, okay, but we're not going to try to do like a Benjamin Button where you know, we're casting the same person, we're going to age him up and age him down. One, we couldn't afford to do that, uh, but also two, I think thematically part of the point of the film was how the world can radically change these young men, you know, based on how they're responding to their environment, based on the lack of nurturing or the application of, of the wrong kind of nurturing, the sort of hyper-masculinity. Um, and so I wanted, you know, the character to become a different person. You know, we were going to cast different people uh, to play this guy. Um, we weren't looking for people who like, looked like one another. I was looking for the same feeling, you know. There's this book by Walter Murch called uh, In the Blink of an Eye. It's like one of the first books I read in film school. And it basically just talks about how in cinema, the eyes are the window into the soul. So I thought if I could find actors, if you look in their eyes, you see the same soul, you know, you'll believe that there's a continuum, you know, of this guy going on this journey. So that was part of it. Right. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. He, he, he almost wanted this, you know, like we kind of get ourselves into this moment of comfort with these characters, and then it changes. And... We want, and I've noticed with, and maybe I'm wrong. Actually, I might be wrong. I was gonna say I don't feel like we start on Chiron in any of the in any, the beginning of any of the the segments. I, I could be wrong on that because I feel like part three we we start with him. But he yeah. said like I wanted you to to see these people, and 
wonder who is this person mm, mm-hmm. why do i care about this person mm-hmm. and then for you to put it together that oh this is that this is that little kid from the previous scene or this is you know that that disgruntled teenager or what mm-hmm. have you and how the, uh that was something he truly cared about he wasn't looking for you to instantly know that this is who this character is right right and like i think that yeah because it's i I think um naomi harris this character paula is the only actor who you see in all three parts of the film which is which is so which is so crazy because like she pretty much it's like a 15 year or more time frame of um of when she has to act but then she she shot all of her scenes in three days. <laughs> um, um, wow, which is which is crazy when you think about it. Um, um, yeah, and then I mean, I mean, the behind the scenes of this film um, is just so. I mean, you could write books on it. I mean, I mean, just dissect that itself. I mean, for and then the other thing that Barry Jenkins did was that the actors who play Chiron and Kevin never met during the filming. Um, um, they never met each other because he didn't want them to imitate each other in terms of their acting, which, which I find that's fascinating. So interesting. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Because like they all have a very distinct way of playing it, but then, um, it's interesting that they don't try to, you know, they didn't have them meet so that way they weren't imitating each other because, I wanted to get your opinion on this. And like I said, we're jumping around, but that's what we do yeah. on this show. <laughs> right, right, yeah. In part in part three, titled Black, when we when um we meet the adult Chiron. Mm-hmm. And um and that threw me too, because when we see him like this this almost like muscle bound god, uh and he's mm. he's far more confident he's he's joking like he almost he's almost kind of scary when he's joking around with one of his his, his little lackeys yeah mm-hmm. uh, and that that line that really sticks out with me too it's like well if you're gonna be on the street you got you can't let words get to you and i was like oh that's very different than the person you used to be because those words <laughs> did used to get to you right. uh, and he's very confident he's got like a swagger to him mm-hmm. but then i noticed when he went to go see Kevin, when he's walking from after he puts the shirt on and he wa- he's walking from the car, his body language changes completely. Yeah, yeah. And he starts moving and acting very much like uh, like Chiron was in in Act Two. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And knowing that they didn't communicate with each other about that, I'm sure Barry Jenkins was giving him some sort of direction, but like he reverted to his previous self so mm. significantly and i'm so glad that we got all those scenes beforehand of him in his world and confident how the way he acts with his mom which is pretty similar to how he did as a kid but then the way that he acts around kevin i thought was 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 really telling oh yeah oh yeah no no and i think that that change i mean you can even hear it in like his voice when he's when he gets that first call from Kevin and he, like, he thinks that it's his mother because like you have like, he gets that first call that like they, um, they pan to the, to the open refrigerator when his mother like leaves a message. But then he like, he like answers the phone thinking that it's his mother and it's yeah, Kevin. And then, like he, he, he leans the phone up against his face and yeah. he's just so like, he's so used to saying this like, mom, I'm coming. Don't worry about it. Yeah. And then he hears the voice and it's like his, his spine almost becomes completely straight. And he's like, right. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. 
Yeah, and I think, yeah, I mean, that was, I don't, I, I mean, I think that if they would have, you wouldn't, yeah, I think it was such unnerving, but then, like, you get those, to know, for one, to watch it and be like, okay, these are separate actors, but you can feel the connection between mm-hmm. the actors, and then you learn that they never actually met each other is, like, something, like, it's so, it's so crazy and unsettling, but, like, in a good way. <laughs> Um, um, for sure, for sure. And, and, and it's, it's even more interesting too, like thinking about like the actress who played Kevin, Mm. Mm -hmm. because while the type of person that they eventually become is different than you'd expect based on who he was as a teenager, every version of Kevin just has this really interesting cockiness and sureness about how he holds himself yeah yeah the character of kevin i mean that's um i think that that's a question that i still have about like i almost want like a full another film (laughs) specifically about kevin because we don't really get um because there's so much left unsaid with him which is great and like i mean Mm -hmm. i feel like that's a strength of the um of the film as well but then i think that it's um i was listening to an interview um I'm, I'm with Terrell McCraney and then he and then pretty much the third act was Barry Jenkins that was not in the original source material it's that he had that the other part was like an earlier that that like he hadn't really explored that relationship with um I'm with Black and with Black and Chiron and so and so I think that Barry I think Barry I think as a straight black man I think he was I think he connected I'm, I mean he definitely connected with Chiron's character but you can see like where when he talks about his questions about Kevin I think that he wanted to explore that character so much more and I think that that's where you see Barry Jenkins come through the film where like it's like oh yeah like who like 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 who is Kevin <laughs> um yeah. who is this guy yeah um, no exactly and it so there was just like this profound sadness to so much of the film that while the ending didn't have like you know this swelling big feel-good moment there still felt like there was some catharsis to it Mm. and i just thought as i was watching the film about people who are close to me like yourself who you know couldn't be open with who they are with their in terms of their sexuality at, at a certain point in their life and then like how once you finally start being sure of who you are that it must feel like a weight coming off of your shoulders where it may not always be easy but at least there's something that you to me that final scene just felt like he could be honest and Mm. if you don't mind me sharing a little bit of a personal story between me and you it kind of reminded me of the the day that the night that we all went out and you came out to me and our mutual friend paul Mm. and i just saw in your face too that it just it seemed like you finally were happy that you could tell someone yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And if you don't so... want to talk about that, that's fine. I just I, no, no. I, I was no, just relating no, it to no, my own um, experiences. With... Yeah, yeah. It's um, yeah. I mean, it's partially why I'm, I'm. I mean, I connected to the films in so many ways. I mean, yeah. I think that I think there's um, yeah, definitely that catharsis feeling when you can finally. I mean, it's not even like spoken really between the two characters, no. and he doesn't actually have. 
a coming out moment. He just he just pretty much just admits that like Kevin was the last person who he was intimate with. And that was I mean, and then they pan to the um um and then they're just holding each other. Which like But I also feel like that was his moment. He didn't say the words. Right. He didn't need the yeah. But Mm -hmm. he it was still his moment right right it was his yeah it was his way of expressing that and like we still don't know i mean there's so many questions about about and about whether um i mean because he might be gay he might be bi i mean kevin might be bi i um i'm so i'm some um aspect of the spectrum of sexuality um we don't know and i think that that ambiguity in like their sexuality but then also the ambiguity of what happens after the credits roll to them. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I think that that's like what, that, that's how, that that's how life is. It's not, I mean, after coming out, I still had, it wasn't like, I mean, in certain ways it was like a weight was lifted, but then there were so many other questions and so many other things that, things that, um, that, um, that, um, I'm still, I'm still in that you still deal with. Um, yeah, and I think that that's like, I mean, I think, um, McCraney mentions it. It's that, um, it's that like after he saw the film, I mean, he, he went into like a very deep depression. Um, um, even though he, it's been, it's been years since he, since I think like, um, since he wrote the piece and since he experienced a lot of those experiences, I think, I think still it's like, there's a lot of that weight that still just lingers with you, um, um, throughout your life. Um, even though you have, you can, even though there are those distinct moments where, where you see those cracks coming out, where like you can, Mm -hmm. where like the veil is kind of lifted and you can see that person who was like the mask comes off, like that person who he was, who he was trying to be that building himself up to try to be hard rather than soft, like letting himself be who he is and define himself. I think that that's, Mm -hmm. yeah, that was that was really um, something that I, that I connected to inside the film a lot. And it's, it's also kind of a masterclass in what we were talking about a little bit before um, of showing, not telling Mm. of, so not only is it a masterclass for directing, but then acting itself where there's so many, that that third act specifically, there's so much going on with a glance or a look Mm. or that the way that they let that song kind of do the talking for them and they just kind of reacted to it. That told us, I feel like everything we need to know. Yeah, they could have, you know, they could have, and I feel like it's very easy to overwrite this scene. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it's mm-hmm. it's so it shows mm-hmm. a lot of confidence to have a scene that says so much that has so little dialogue. Because I know for myself, when I'm writing, I'll sometimes wonder if something is too subtle and do I need to explain it? And uh, this kind of goes back, and it's it's the reason I I described it to Amanda as a, as a visual tone poem. Because mm-hmm. this this entire film, you know, is kind of in a in a good way, kind of an attack of your senses in terms of visuals and audio. And while there is dialogue, it's it feels more character strengthening than plot driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and I and I think like I mean, even the like the pacing and the tone of that third act. I mean, the first two acts, you're kind of um, it's 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 you're there, but it feels like it's moving very quickly like you're moving through these 
where you're moving through these aspects of his life. And but then with the third act, you get to these I mean, you get to that diner scene and it almost plays out the rest of the film, like a, at least like a quarter of the film plays out somewhat in like real time. And you're just sitting in that diner with them for like and it's well, and it's so in like the pauses and the lack of dialogue. And I thought that that was a really um, strong way to end it because it didn't feel like and, the other two parts to me. Um, and on we, top of that, too. It all like just the way the camera moved because the camera in the first two acts was very kind of chaotic and um, used a lot of first person perspective to put us in the shoes of Chiron. Um, but I imagine like um, it, it did have a lot of like said more fast paced camera work to kind of just I feel like to put you in the situation of kind of being on edge at all times. And the only time that the camera wasn't moving like that was when Chiron was alone with someone. Mm. Um, and then since he's pretty much just alone with, with one other person in the entire third act of the film, the camera stops moving as much. The film slows down uh, quite a bit. And yeah. it bookends itself. I have, I've seen people talk about the... since. I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this. I'm obsessed with food in films. Mm. Uh, a big part of it because I'm just a chubby dude who likes to eat. But uh, <laughs> I wrote an I wrote an, uh, an unpublished little short essay about how food and film can be used. It's it's character development mm. and how food how food can be used well from everything from delivering exposition to how it can be used to show you the manner. Of, just watching people eat will sometimes give you an idea of who these characters are. Um, and I've seen some people talk about the scene of Kevin making that that chicken dinner, that mm. chicken recipe mm. for Chiron. But I actually thought it was a really beautiful bookend for a scene in the beginning of the film where so Chiron and Kevin are a little uneasy. They've not seen each other in years. And they open up over a meal, mm-hmm. which is pretty much how Juan right. got yep. Chiron to speak. Yep, yep. Yeah, that scene, that, yeah. And I have not seen anyone talk about kind of the bookends of those two Mm -hmm. and how, you know, food is kind of like this this natural thing that brings people together. You're not going to tell me what your name is? Hmm? How about where you live? I gotta get you home, little man. Can't have you just running around these dope holes. You understand? Hmm? <laughs> hey, 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 my bad. Oh, man, I you know I ain't gonna do you like that. Hey, man, I apologize, all right? Just trying to get you to say something. Hey. I apologize. Hmm? Mm, mm-hmm. No, no, I definitely, now that I think about it, yeah, that initial, that initial conversation, and, like, he's almost, like, um, yeah, it's, like, when one, um, when one like presses him on the um um trying to get little to open and 
Um, and he takes and he takes the food away for a second, yes. and then you just see little just like just like just descend into himself, and he just and it's yeah. I mean, there's so much saying there about food um, and about the relationship between between those characters and um, and food and just like how to hold yourself at like. Uh, I mean, I'm thinking about Teresa when like when when like he's over at her house um, and. They're having a conversation inside the second act, and like she's like, um, 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 um she's like, y- y- you don't sit at my table with your head with your head lowered, um, mm-hmm. um, and just kind of like, um, and it's and it's, I mean, yeah, <laughs> there's just there's like, just so much. Yeah, it's something that I I when I rewatch this film and I want to rewatch it soon that I want to pay a little more attention to and just seeing just in general like how food is used because. If you even think about it, too, it's like when the bully, who I think is an interesting character as well, uh, because he's not one dimensional, Mm -hmm. um, when he kind of, for lack of a term, puts the hit out on Chiron and 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 essentially gets Kevin to do it, they do it over lunch. Right, right, right. And then that great line where like, it's like, oh, don't drink that government um, 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 juice. It'll kill you. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. what he like talks about, like, and like, yeah, there were, um, and just like where, like, where Chiron, um, is seated in that cafeteria. Um, I'm like, when, because like he goes off by himself and he's sitting like at the end of the table with like, with like teachers and like, you could just tell, like, I mean, there's so much that's, you know, but that's been written about, um, African American um kids in particular and just cafeteria space in that space of in the space of eating and and just and just like how social bonds are formed um but yeah i think that yeah i think that food in this film definitely needs to be explored um um in a in a more explicit way um yeah yeah, and like that—that's that, one thing I, I was focusing. I was focusing on a lot when I was watching this film, but uh, um, I thought the just the use of food um, was interesting, and to see the love in which Kevin prepared that meal, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. you know, because like he—he he was making stuff. You know, he works at a little just you know five and dine burger breakfast all day type place, and. You know, like you said, you could order what's off the menu or you can get the chef special. And so he's making something that doesn't belong on the menu, that's not on the menu, that he's just kind of feeling it out using what he has. And um, uh, and I read something with Barry Jenkins where he was talking about, like, they, 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 you know, films are usually shot at 24 frames per second. They're shooting at a higher frame rate so they can slow the footage down and kind of give it a... A really nuanced feel to it because um because he said one thing that he wanted to also talk about which he said is um the fact that in black male culture it's considered taboo or you know quote unquote gay to cook for another man mm-hmm. you know to cook like for a group of people or whatever and grill out as one like he didn't say that um, but it's like you know he said just but to to cook for another man is considered taboo yeah yeah and he wanted to kind of normalize that and you know and i imagine you know kevin did it because he you know even if nothing happened he just came and caught up with an old friend 
mm-hmm. he got to give a part of himself to this person that he did wrong. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, no, I think, yeah, and there, I mean, yeah, yeah, the significance of that, you know, of that meal to to potentially like working towards repairing that relationship. I mean, I mean, because you go from their most intimate, like most intimate moment between them um, on the beach. And then the next day is like, it's unraveled. It's unraveled. Um, Mm -hmm. um, And then they don't speak or talk to each other for, for 10 years. And it's like, I can only imagine like what is going through both of their heads when they're when they're meeting for the first time because it's not because it's not as if I mean so many times like you see I mean it's it's um um inside film and specifically with with um with um gay male characters inside film it's that that it's that that bully character can kind of um if that person you can kind of externalize it where it's like oh like it's like the physical violence or or whatever can be put on this other non-romantic person, and same thing with and same thing with with um with um, racism. Sometimes inside film, it's like oh, there's this external um um antagonist who does some physical harm, and that there's this other person, this other person who who comes in and starts to and that brings that that um that intimacy that healing for the protagonist, but with Kevin, it's all in the same person because he was implicated in the violence and he's there as a suit as, as like, he's part of this, he's part of that healing too, which I thought was really interesting. Um, um, just because it's, it's it's just that messiness. (laughs) Yeah. And speaking of healing, I thought I find it interesting too. So in the third act, we, we don't see Teresa anymore. Mm -hmm. We don't even know what their relationship is really like. I imagine they still speak because his mom says that I got, or no, Kevin says I got your number from Teresa. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's interesting too. It's like, you know, I, I feel like in the end that's, that's reconciliation with Kevin is what he really needed because like his mom is trying to improve herself and is being very candid with her issues and, and how she feels. And it's, and I'm also sure it's, it's words that Sharon has heard before. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But after that, his, 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 his night with Kevin, you just, I, I really got the feeling that that's what he has been looking for. That's what he needed um because i you know i i kind of said earlier that i thought i think there's actually two themes behind this film two stated themes in the film one of them i think is what um young kevin said to chiron that you can't let him see you be soft but but i also think it's i think the theme of this film is actually um finding out who you are because it plays into this not to another line that i thought to be very impactful is that Juan says to him um at some point you've got to decide for yourself who you want to be yeah mm-hmm. and I'm, and it almost feels like these two ideologies are combating with him yeah do i be the person i want to be or do i have to be the person they expect me to be right right and even like when um i mean that i mean that theme is like on full force during the last part of the film because like when they're driving and like he just like and like um I mean, it's like, who is you, Chiron? And like, he's like, um, and like, they're sitting in on um, back at Kevin's apartment, 
and like he's like you're not um you're not who i expected um when he's talking to chiron and then chiron's like well what did you expect and kind of like that kind of like who like who are these people and like what is the like like who do you want to be who does the world perceive you as how do you feel that you are i mean that's i mean there's so much there i mean there's so much to the film that just speaks to that um about the question of 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 identity and like who you are yeah and it's that line with kevin i just thought of it now is is funny to me just because you know who is you and you know you're not who i expect you to be it's it's different but it reminds me very similar to how young kevin said to him he's like you're goofy well how do you mean you just are Mm -hmm, he can't mm -hmm. explain it's just something Mm -hmm. about him and like i almost and like i just really felt for middle chiron where you know he gets made fun of for practically everything he does you know his pants being too tight and you know all these other little things he never really has a chance to figure out who he wants to be Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so much so to the point where and i'm just this is all coming to me off the off the fly when juan tells his story about growing up in cuba let me tell you something man there are black people everywhere remember that okay no place you can go in the world ain't got no black people. We was the first on this planet. I've been here a long time. And I'm from Cuba. A lot of black folks in Cuba. You wouldn't know that from being here, though. I was a wild little shorty, man. Just like you. Running around with no shoes on. The moon was out. This one time. I run by this old, this old lady. I was running, hollering, cutting a food, boy. This old lady, she stopped me. She said, running around, catching up all that light. In moonlight, black boys look blue. You blue. That's why I go call you. Blue. Say your name, Blue. <laughs> nah. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you gonna be. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. And that's when he gives that line. Right. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is, and that's what he says, you know, you got to figure out who you want to be. And what I find fascinating is he really did not, he, he reacted very negatively to Kevin's nickname of calling him black. Yeah. But that's what he goes by. Right. 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 That's what, yeah, that's what he goes by inside the third act of the film, which so I he's think still is. still not figured out who he was. He's, he's, yeah. Yeah. yeah I think that that, yeah. And, I feel like I mean I mean when you have that third when um when Kevin finds out that um that um black has been that he supports himself by dealing you could just see like like the pain inside his face where like he's like this is like this is not what I wanted for you Chiron you can like see that and like Kevin and like and I think Andre Holland like like plays that scene really well where where like I mean it's it's just like gosh like because because 
in a lot of ways, like that nickname, it's like it could come off as 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 um that black nickname like could come off as derogatory um just because mm-hmm. he's a he's a light skinned black man and then making and then nicknaming his friend black, but like you could see that like it's it at least I don't think that it was i I don't think that Kevin was intending it to be to be kind of like a slight or like a derogatory nickname. I think it was a really um, intimate term of endearment that the, the, like, the, like he nicknamed him um, when they were back in middle and high school. I think that that's, yeah. Yeah. And what I also find interesting, and it goes back to what you were saying earlier about wanting a, another film or even just maybe a short film about Kevin because <laughs> so Kevin says, you're not what I was expecting. And probably because the person that Chiron was when he knew them was very quiet, kind of buttoned-down person. Um, but in the end, his his most positive father figure in this world was a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. And he went down that road because that was the road that presented itself to him when he got out. Yeah. Um, but a very different drug, was, drug dealer, though. I mean, he didn't yeah. emulate Juan. He was... It was because one, I think that like he, he like, I mean, he was a very different drug drug dealer figure. Where like where like where like the mm-hmm. softness and the things that like you that like you found in Juan, you didn't see in Black's but persona. To be fair, we never um, really got to. See, we didn't. We got to see a little bit of that. Yeah, Sharon got to see none of that. Right. Right. So he also didn't know what Juan was like in that in that situation. Or at least we don't know if he did. Mm-hmm. But what I find interesting is, so when we meet Kevin, he does have a, he does have a son, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything. I feel like that's playing on the the, you know, kind of this uh, what is it the 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 down low kind of nature that you sometimes hear about. Um, we don't know if he's open. If he we don't know if he's if he's out of the closet in this film. Yeah. Um, but based on the type of braggadocious kid that he was when he was small and then in high school i actually think where he ended up in life is far more interesting because that's not the world i expected for kevin because he he you'd expect him to be in the situation that chiron was at Mm. in act three Mm. because of the way he acted and the way that he held himself and the reputation he had for being the wild guy Mm. Mm. and here he is living a more honest life um, a more quiet, rundown existence, and even his own line at the end of the film, or and I'm paraphrasing, where he said, uh, "You know, um, money might be tight, but I don't have any worries in the world," or something like that. He makes some comment about like things may not be perfect, but he doesn't have any worries. Right. Yeah. And it's interesting that he found his path that way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, and, and it's funny because yeah. in well, sorry, I'm I'm don't mean to keep cutting you off. Oh no, it's, no, it's no, all coming no, to me. Yeah, um, he found that path, and he kind of went against his own piece of advice of not wanting you shouldn't let them see you be soft. Mm. And for all intents and purposes, he's chosen the more soft life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's so. I mean, yeah. I, I like I play in, inside my mind. It's like if I had if if you didn't see the first two acts of the film. What would you think of of Black and Kevin inside the last inside the last um, inside the last act? And like for Kevin, yeah, without like it just, I mean, 
for me, the film, it plays on how you can have, I mean, how you can have very different, very different outcomes for people coming, coming from the same environment. Um, Mm -hmm. And that there's multiple different paths that even individuals could, could, you know, but could take depending on their circumstances. I, I mean, I mean, Barry Jenkins and um, Emma McCraney, like, grew up within, like, blocks of each other. They went to the same, like, middle, like, elementary middle schools, not the same time, but, and they both became artists, but I'm guessing that there's other, like, like, I mean, that's, I mean, they both came from the same place and are still, I mean, there's, I mean, they're both very different people. Um, And I feel like that kind of, that there's multiple possibilities for the same person but then from the same environment you have that complexity of 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 like of like who these people are and and so like i think like barry jenkins like he said like like what he wanted for at least in part for that last image of of um of black was for audiences to be like the next time they see kind of a built up I was actually going to talk about that yeah. yeah like a built up guy like that with fronts and all that stuff and that they think it's like he has a backstory and it doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. have to be Chiron's but he has a backstory he has there's a mm-hmm. there's a reason why he is where he is and don't take it at face value because it could be the way that he's presenting that he's performing himself could be something very different from how he internally sees himself and who he actually wants to be and who he is and so i thought that that was yeah i thought that that was a great um and i and i think that you only got that because you change the actors between because you have such jarring kind of things with the actors where like if it was the same actor playing like or like or if they tried to like match the the um the actors in terms of physical look to like really really precise i think that like that that you wouldn't have to re like you almost have to like with every act you have to like re-meet the character yeah even though you know where they kind of came from you still have to like re-meet the character which i which which i think it's like i think is just like um um yeah it just goes to why i love the film so much um in my biased opinion in my very biased opinion yeah no i i think that's that's very beautifully said now i'm glad that you brought up that that thing that what barry jenkins said because i i i was actually going to bring that up myself um and then um just a couple little things i wanted to see if you had any any perspective on um i love the use of color in this film Mm -hmm, it's used mm -hmm. really seldomly but it's used really effectively i think one of the most haunting uses of it is sharon's mom and Mm. uh, her kind of like slow motion descent into her room with this really strong pink Mm. color right right so that scene with uh little and his mother in the hallway it's a very simple one, light-wise, actually. You know, there's a, I believe there's a, a light mat forward in the ceiling that's providing some top light to both characters. 
and there's another light mat for giving them a little bit of a key light and also like an eye light. Everything else is quite practical. The lamp behind Little, uh, the, I think he has a little bit of edge light on the side of him. I think that's directly from the lamp, for example. There's a bit of a, a blue LED strip that's over the doorway behind Little. The pink light, which is maybe the most recognizable thing about that scene, was something that was created purely on the fly. Um, I remember distinctly Barry and I started standing behind the camera. Our gaffer had placed an RGB LED light in the bedroom behind her and he had his little mixing board as, one, as, they, as they do and Barry and I just sort of went through a great deal of spectrums. I think we ended up landing on pink in a really effortless sort of gut level trust way. It wasn't something that was planned in six weeks out earlier in pre-production or anything like that. It was just sort of watching the gaffer sort of went through a great deal of colors and in the end um, you know the pink just seemed to sort of speak to us in a certain sort of subconscious way um, I, 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 I was curious if you had any and obviously the 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 idea of the title right which plays into the idea of color as well uh, I was just curious if you had um, I'm still working through what I my my thought process behind the use of color because they don't use it often it's used sparingly right right and almost in like these moments of surreality yeah uh, but i was curious if you had any thoughts on any of it yeah the yeah the colors i mean i mean the colors inside the film i mean there's so much with the cinematography i mean just based on the fact that that multiple black filmmakers um and black audiences have mentioned that how well how well lit and how well like visually the actors look because it's so hard to to shoot people with a lot of melanin <laughs> um, 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 um at least in terms of like and especially in, in mixed company when you have individuals with different skin tones um from talking to my photographer friend he's like yeah it's really hard to to be to be um conscious and um and um effective at a sh um at shooting black um, um black bodies inside the film and so i mean and then barry jenkins said that they didn't use any powder that they used a lot of oils with the actors that they didn't use any powder with the makeup just to like because he wanted the sweat he wanted he wanted that to show and that they kind of glisten um a lot of the actors kind of glisten throughout the film um and then with the and then with the color um um i i watched uh um just kind of like a a short kind of like um introspection of of um, some of the cinematography and like just like it's stuff that i didn't notice and so in the scene where you have um where you have blue um i mean sorry where you have chiron and kevin right before their confrontation it's it's um it's um they have kind of like their shirts it's like one is wearing like a blue shirt with like white stripes and the other one is wearing a white shirt with blue stripes and then, hmm. and then after that, when you see Kevin later, um, um, when they're taking Chiron into the police car, he's wearing, um, um, it's like, it's like the next day, of course, but he just has like this white, he has this white polo with gray and like that. And, and like that commentator was like, literally the blue was sucked out of him be because of hmm. what he did. And then there's just other scenes where like, where like, where like the backdrop is blue um, um, all the doors in the, um, um, in the school, they, they're blue. If you look at like the film and like, they have like blue, like, I mean, there's just so many ways that like, I wish I could talk to, um, the set designer and the cinematographer to see like why, like, 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 like how much attention to detail, um, they put into the color palette. Because like, just like, 
what we were talking about a little bit before we came on. It's like there's just like so much more to the film than just the plot. And like I wanted to see like how they were telling the story using colors and using different um and just yeah, I think that there's so much there's so much more that you could talk about um the colors yeah. um in particular with, with the film. And if you could send me that video that you're that you were watching, I'd love to see that myself. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. Send it out to people. Um and then another thing I wanted to discuss was um and we've kind of talked around the sequence. Um, but I wanted to talk about how the gentle touch that Barry Jenkins had while shooting the beach scene mm. between Kevin and Sharon, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. where I, I, I really appreciate that he didn't like sexualize the scene. It mm. felt very human and earnest. And while it's not a situation that everyone's been in, like it's, it's the feelings I had watching that scene reminded me of like a strong crush that I, that if that I probably once had in my life and just spending time with that person and, feeling the energy between two people i i and it's i actually audibly gasped because like when i was watching that scene and and i also love that um um ashton sanders the way he played it you know they when they're kind of leaning into each other he leaned in and then he stopped right right yep yep and then he went in again and it's like oh that's just a subtle little thing where he's still keeping his guard up and the entire time like said so there was just like this kind of sense of dread because i did not know how this scene was going to play out mm-hmm. and i didn't know if at the very end like kevin was going to turn on him or something there's so many powerful moments in the movie and we don't have a whole lot of time so mm-hmm. i, I want to get to a couple of them one in particular that's really affecting is Chiron's first sexual experience mm-hmm. it's with his uh, his friend mm-hmm. kevin mm-hmm. um there's a lot going on here. I want to point out that most people so far haven't seen this film yet. Um, so they're, they're, they're sitting on the beach. They're, they're, they're next to one another. Mm-hmm. They're kind of ribbing one another. They, they've just kind of smoked a joint. And then something kind of intimate happens. What, what were you trying to get across during that scene? You know, that, that scene is, I'm glad you mentioned it. It's like, for me, like one of the most pivotal scenes yeah. uh, in the film. You know, I approach this story as an ally. You know, I'm, I'm a straight black man. Yeah. Um, and yet I feel like I'm an ally to LGBTQ causes. Um, and Terrell McCraney is a very out playwright, you know, and so I wanted to preserve his voice. And that scene is written in Terrell's voice. I don't have that first person perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think empathy can only get you so far, mm-hmm. you know, and so having Terrell's voice and having his life experiences at the core of the piece and the source material was really important. And I wanted to nail that scene. It just had to be nailed. I think the whole movie spins on the idea of this transference, you know, of trust and emotion and having someone allow you to space to uh, to embrace your identity. And I think in that scene, both those actors, they do it in such a, a delicate and sort of caring way um, that you can see, you know, the scene that happens next, you know, over the next two minutes where there's this huge betrayal, you know, it only works because that scene is just so genuinely intimate between those two actors. But you, as a director, you you, mm-hmm. you had to make a choice because it's it, it's it's a largely implied scene. Mm-hmm. You know, it's there's not it's not overly explicit, and you mm-hmm. you gave a lot of space to that scene. Mm-hmm. Was mm-hmm. that something you did intentionally? Uh, I did it intentionally because I wanted the the sequence or that scene to have this not necessarily innocence, you know, yeah. but I wanted it to be positive. You know, I wanted it to be a positive first sexual experience. You know. I didn't want it to be like a under cloak and dagger or there's this this tension or things like that. I yeah. wanted it to be a very kind, caring scene because in the third story, those two characters reunite. And I think they reunite because something genuinely was transferred um, in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think that that's something that's um, 
yeah, listening to Barry Jenkins talk and have a talk about that scene, he, he said it was one of like the hardest scenes for him to shoot just coming from not only because he's like a straight black black man um, filming two men's men in an intimate scene, but just just the layers of that. And I think that um, he has a oh gosh, I'll try to send you this, this interview as well. But he's talking about the conversation that he had with the actor um, um, Gerald Jerome, who played Kevin about leading up to that scene and then and just like how he's like so so like this is the first time like and just like his questions to like Barry Jenkins and like it's like so this is the first time that they're that they're um that Chiron has been with a man is it the first time that Kevin's been with a man he's like no well not necessarily and like he's kind of like oh well um how do I play like like has he like so this is the first time that he's been kissed at all and then it's like uh maybe and then so just like all like these like there's just so many layers with that scene but i but i think you bring up something important with and i think it gets to like the specificity particularly with um i'm with i'm, I'm with queer men in particular is that when you cross that when you move into that boundary that there's always that threat of violence um, and that, like, you have to be kind of on your guard because you don't know what kind of reaction um, the other, the other, I know, but the other person will have because it's not kind of like, oh, like, we kiss and um, um, or are intimate and that they just ghost me or that they just leave and they just mm-hmm. don't talk to me. It's like there's like a lit- literal threat of violence that could happen that's running mm-hmm. through your mind that, like, and I think that, and so. I definitely think that Ashton Sanders played that so well with like that hesitation mm-hmm. and that moving in and out and and I and on this and the question of um like the like the sexual um explicitity of of that scene I think that I think Barry Jen- I mean some some um LGBTQ critics have um um criticized the film because because he didn't show that and like um and that he didn't really show um um, a more um sexually explicit scene that was somehow that like showing that it was like claiming that it was like more taboo or that like he should have like it's like just in the way that you would shoot the scene with a straight couple like why didn't you give them that freedom to show that on screen and i and i kind of hesitate towards and I kind of, myself, personally, I kind of lean towards the, I like that it was more reserved and that it was more ambiguous and that it was more respectful and that it was more, um, or, or not even respectful, but in more, um, um, that he didn't show that. I think that it was a very, I mean, it wasn't completely innocent, but like, it, it felt like I was <laughs> like, yeah, it was just, you were able to be there with them and like the anticipation and the anxiety and, and and I think that it was like a beautifully shot 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 scene um and I uh, and going to what you're saying about LGBTQ critics <clears throat> about that scene and I, I get where they're coming from that you know it's you know the way that they would shoot it between a man and a woman could potentially be very different but I also think it, it comes down to the context of the scene itself like I feel like a movie like this wouldn't have... I just don't personally feel like it would have had a, an explicit scene mm. like that. Mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. it kind of comes down to the idea of, like, 
are you having that scene just to are you showing something explicit just to show it explicit because you normally you don't normally see that between men or are you choosing what's best for the scene mm, because just mm-hmm. because movies have had men and women be very explicitly so that each other doesn't mean that's what's always right for that movie or for the scene you know and i i think like i feel like because they didn't show it uh show any make it sexualized or very explicit it still played into the awkwardness and the weirdness of sexuality when you're a teenager yeah yeah i definitely yeah i definitely agree with that there's um yeah just this gosh i mean it's watching that scene and i remember sitting inside the theater and like literally like clenching my chair when i was watching that scene just i know but just because i was i was i was there in a different way i was feeling that like that mm-hmm. like adult like that more so adolescent self when like you're just like gosh like the just i i mean it was a very i mean it was a very well done scene in my opinion mm-hmm. um um as well as the scene when they're um as well as not showing um um um, like the more final scene of the film or the final shot of the film outside of the um, little on the beach, but like just Kevin just holding, just, 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 just holding, um, just holding um, Chiron Black at the end of the film. And like that, because inside, because I looked at the, at the original script because I'm like, hmm, like I want to like see like, 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 because I want to read it. And there is a uh, part like inside the original script for the film that last scene the like it's like the light turns off and they move towards each other and then they have you hear kissing and other stuff in the ba- in the, like the background and the darkness and so in the script it was inside like that final scene they did have some kind of more sexually explicit interaction but inside the film i i appreciate the ambiguity because you're not sure if like they could have just sat there and held each other for hours, and that was yeah, what. And then tomorrow morning, they could just that, that could be the last time they see each other. He goes, right. you know, Chiron could go back to Atlanta and continue his life. Right, right, right. Or they could have, um, or something could have. I mean, could have happened between them. I mean, you just, I me, mean, just don't know. And I, and I think that Barry Jenkins, like he put it. Um, or no wait no sorry it was um it was a um, McCraney because because he didn't um because he didn't write that inside the original um material and so he was speaking on um on that reunion piece and like he's like I uh, I'm like he appreciates Jenkins ambiguity because it allows the characters some uh, I know and I know but some autonomy and some sense of like we get to decide what our relationship is moving forward and sometimes you're not privy to it as <laughs> as the audience it's like it's like something's for us kind of and like they have like mm-hmm. some sense of autonomy of like who they are as people and who they're going to be and stuff and so i thought that that was um yeah yeah i think that jenkins um restraint throughout the film if you could call it that is is um um was really was really telling and and I think also they, I also believe that's for me why the film has stuck with me mm. and will continue to do so. And I'm not saying every film needs to kind of have this. I like how you worded it: restraint or like this minimalist approach to its storytelling. 
but I love when a mo- when not everything is tied up in a perfect little bow. Like this is exactly the type of movie that I imagine some people would go and see, and not like it because mm. it's like, mm-hmm. well, no, like I can see some people be like, well, nothing happened. Right. When right. a lot happens, it's just going back to a previous topic. It's not plot folk. It's not plot driven. You know, I can mm-hmm. see people being like, well, that was boring or that was too slow or there's nothing going on in this film. Once, you know, if you watch it in the right mentality, there's a lot going on. In it. Yeah. Like, so, you know, I keep talking about like the sense of dread throughout it. And it just kind of has this, this, it has so much atmosphere and it's got a great sense of tone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the way it was cut together, like where it's, um, um, the film had two editors, uh, Joy McMillan, who is actually the first uh, black woman to become to be nominated for editing Oscar, yep, yep. and uh, Nat Sanders. And I feel like they, they just they, because editing is such a big part of the film. You could shoot one thing, and it can come out completely different in the edit. And it's mm. kind of their job to find these moments and the way that they handled slow with fast pace. Mm. and yeah the way yeah. they kind of cycle between both of it i think is just masterful it was one of those scenes that barry i guess between those two scenes i mentioned this one and the one in the courtyard in the second act uh those two scenes barry got so excited by by what i had done in that second pass that every day he would make me show him those scenes before we started working i mean he's probably seen oh I mean, really it's like yeah. three months worth of you know we start all right let's start the day by watching the swimming scene and the courtyard scene and uh <laughs> And, but, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm just happy with how it turned out because it really was sort of like an improv scene. Uh, I mean, there was, I think it was only an eighth of a page in the script. Just Juan teaches little how to swim. And Alex, that, that boy, didn't know how to swim. And so Barry kind of treated it like a real experience, like he was going to teach him, uh, like Mahershala, the actor, was going to teach Alex how to swim. And, and they kind of just shot it very loose, kind of documentary-like. And... So it really was a lot on, on you know, on the edit to find the, to find the scene. You know, it was probably, I don't know. Uh, do you know how much footage it was? Like how long? Well, actually, it was that there was also a storm coming in. Yeah. So there wasn't a ton of footage of them like him learning how to swim. Yeah. Yeah. So you didn't have true. like a ton of takes to choose from. That's true, and there was a good amount of it that was like too. It would make you too too yeah. seasick, but because uh, it, it was too rocky. But uh, but there was a lot of footage that that uh you know to sort through and and so i kind of treated like an improv scene and and rather than kind of going line building it line by line you know uh just watching the dailies the first time through just just watching them for your pure kind of uh experience and that's you know that's the time you're going to be the most objective watching experiencing the footage and so you know it's important to just kind of be the eyes of the audience on that first watch through on the dailies and then second time through, I just grabbed every moment that just kind of popped and put it all in a timeline that ended up being maybe 20 or 30 minutes long and then just started whittling that down, just watched that 20 minutes and started taking out the things that weren't quite as compelling. And once I really whittled it down, just find a way to, to stitch, to, to get from one to the next. And, and, uh, and then I started, as I started putting together, I saw you know the waves kept lapping over the camera every once in a while and most of them were close to where I wanted my edit points to be yeah so I started working with the waves and having the waves carry us from cut to cut and sort of near the end when and I started getting in that mode so then near the end when his he says uh, right before he sends him off swimming says, I think you're ready you're ready to swim 
the waves were really coming over the camera, and that like maybe 15 second chunk was about two times longer in the footage, but I saw that through the waves going over the camera, I could cut out you know these three second chunks of just kind of dead space and and you know pace it up the way right yeah yeah and I think um yeah in that interview with um with um Barry Jenkins he mentions um the first cut of the film that he showed to the producers and to the other um collaborators and like he was like it was a very it was a very different film he said it was very more it was um it was more light it didn't have that um there was a, he said it. He, um, he said that it wasn't it wasn't that it was more funny. It was just that it was it was like you could because they had a very he said that they had a very good, good, intimate time on the on the set and like that and like that sense of like weight and dread that like you feel through so much of the film and just like anticipation. And that wasn't necessarily it took a lot of work on the part of the on the part of them to make that. It just didn't come naturally. Um, and so and that's. That's a great way to think about it too, because like, you know, especially if they, like you said, if they did have a good time on set. There's probably there's probably many different takes sometimes where they're doing things a little more playfully or, you know, some some uh, improving or ad libbing, and I never want this to sound like a, like a criticism because I, I say this about films often. The acting's almost got a stiltedness to it, mm. like a stuntedness to it, where they're holding a lot in. And I, and I I always really like when that shows up. And sometimes it can be used poorly. Mm, mm-hmm. But I think this is a case where it's it's used so well um, where I almost feel like because they they keep so much internally that more is being said on their face. Right, right. Yeah. And I think that that's where, um, um, yeah, where Barry Jenkins comes in as a, um, as a, filmmaker because he because 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 he allowed for those silences whereas the um he mentions that the original sort and of a source material was very talky was very um um, it was very narrative driven which i think comes from mccraney's like like theater background and like as a playwright um um um, and that shifting it to film um into that medium that they had to like allow for like those spaces of like a lot of like intern like those like internal um, like the internal power of the film of those characters and like how they express themselves on their faces and like what you said earlier about Mahershala um, Ali with his confrontation with Paula and that he doesn't like respond with this huge monologue about about morals and drug dealing and drug use and where like you would see that in like some of these other more I'm not gonna say like more like I mean yeah these um more of like racial like when race and blackness and other things are involved you kind of get kind of those talking head kind of kind of kind of moralizing characters inside the story i could think of like um like um um brad um brad pitt's infamous um um cameo in 12 years a slave that is pretty much um like i'm like i can't i can't watch parts of that film because i'm like god like i'm like just leave it and like i'm like we and like we don't need that character um or we don't need that part of dialogue to understand the weight and like that part of the film i mean yeah so that's i mean that's just me me personally um i love the silence i mean i think that that goes to like some of my favorite films i mean i love um on the turkish filmmaker um um Nuri Bilja 
um, um, Ceylon. Um, and his films, sometimes they go on, I mean, Once Upon a Time in Anatolia and Winter Sleep Art. There's so many, there's so many just silent, there's so much silence. And I think that just playing with silence is, is can be um, so underrated with, with how you can do it effectively and how powerful that that can be inside films where you can play with silence. Um, and so I, so I really appreciated that in Moonlight for sure. And then I've got a, a, a question that it's more so I want, I, I want you, it's, it's less about the film and more so I want uh, something I'd like your perspective on because um, we live in a world where, you know, we, we definitely want to get more black voices on the screen mm. and more, and more black voices heard. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's going to happen where there's going to be black characters written by not black writers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and I don't, I don't necessarily feel like it's a bad thing, but you gotta, you gotta walk that ground very carefully of how you present these characters and, and how, and, and what you, you know, what you choose to say and what you don't choose to say. And I was curious of your experience as a movie fan, what do you think, like say, a, say an aspiring writer out there right now that has a story that he wants to tell and he, he, he doesn't want to have an all white cast. He wants to have a black character in the film and give him something to chew on. You know, what are some do's and don'ts for writers or filmmakers writing for people of color that in your personal oh, opinion gosh. like what do you like the people who do it well and versus the people who don't do it well and if you don't have an answer that's fine it just yeah. kind of came to me yeah yeah i mean that's such a i mean yeah that's such a complex thing um i would say that um first those first those writers those those directors who aren't black need to make sure that they have long have cultivate actual relationships that aren't professional with black people. Um, So not just like when they want to make a film that they're engaging with the black community or reading black books or, or looking for that. It's like, it should come from, I mean, I, um, that they should work to cultivate those relationships with that community in a non-professional manner where they're, just trying to just interacting with, 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 with people without the intent that I'm going to be writing this film or I'm going to be making this film, that you have to have some kind of like relationship um, with black people, with the community um, um, outside of the structures of the film. Because I think that that's where you get that, where you'll get that honest critique from black people if you're not... Um, if you're doing something that's that um, that's offensive or that's stereotypical and stuff, I don't necessarily think that that conversation can come off of oh, so I met you two weeks ago and you're the and you're the cinematographer, you're the actor, you're the DP on my film and stuff. They're not necessarily going to tell you what they actually think about um, um, because that because that because that relationship isn't there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that, and so I think that really cultivating those and you know, about those relationships outside of film um, can really help because because if you're going to, um, if they had played that, I, I know, but that scene with them um, because I think that um, and um, the second thing I think that it's like um, 
it's a conversation about how best to depict black people on film. It's a conversation that's happening within the black community as well. There's not just because it's a black filmmaker that they know that they have the one voice of how black people should, you know, but should be depicted inside film. I think that um, Naomi Harris has mentioned her reservations about playing um, Paula, playing a black woman um, 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 who deals with who deals with drug addiction inside a film, and that she didn't want to portray that because originally, because she's like she didn't want to feed into those stereotypes, um, um, and that she had avoided a lot of those roles inside the past. I mean, you think of her her film repertoire. I mean, looking at this and then watching her in um, um, opposite Daniel Craig inside the Bond films, it's like holy crap. It's like her range is mm-hmm. incredible. But then it was because she had talked to. Barry Jenkins um, about that about that the depiction of Paula inside the film was based on his relationship with his mother. It was an actual, and that he had a lot of care and tenderness and protectiveness of that character. And so that, and so after that conversation was when she decided to play to join the film to play that character. And so I think that 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 recognizing that there's a multitude of voices. Um, um, within the within the black community, um, about how best to represent um, black characters, and then I think that also it changes over time. So, like, even if you talk to your black friend, your black colleague, or whatever, um, um, when you're making a film, is that is that are like anybody else's perspectives on things? They evolve over time, and you got to allow room for that. So, like, just because your friend said that they agreed with a particular portrayal on your last film doesn't mean that it's the same thing. Doesn't and it doesn't mean that their view could change over the course of their life or in the treat or in the course of certain circumstances. I'm thinking of particularly with them um, with um, Viola Davis and um, mm-hmm. I mean the way that her discussion about her her portrayal inside the Help has changed over time um, 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 and how she's now she's to the point where she's like outright like like she says that she regrets taking that role um because of how it played um, um because of the narrative choices and the um and the depiction that it portrayed of her um and of black women inside the help whereas that took a um you could see her progression when you look at interviews and when you look at how she talks about that role and i think that yeah and i think giving black people the space to have multiple views that you're not going to have one kind of black stamp of approval. <laughs> um, 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 and that I'm going to give black, um, black people the space to have, um, um, to change their views over time. I think that that, um, and yeah, because I don't think that it's like, it's, it's like the question of like, you can't take like a implicit or like implicit bias class or like kind of like a, um, diversity and inclusion class like one time and think that you're good um, for the rest of your career. Um, I think it's a constant kind of conversation that you have to have with black people um, and not necessarily in a formal setting because I'm guessing that that you might have it, it's like, it's like um, there's a conversation that you'll that you might have on set with your black colleague and then a different conversation that you'll have at the um in a diner just having 
IHOP with them after shooting. I feel like those are mm-hmm. those could be those could be potentially very different conversations about um, and about the level of comfortability that that I know, but that that person has has with has with telling you that honest feedback because I mean there's a lot of I mean from there's there's still that danger of being presented of I mean I think that some black people I mean myself included I mean there's I know, but there's times when I have held back on my critiques um, of things that I've thought were inappropriate or stereotypical in, um, in, in certain situations because I didn't want to come come across as the angry black man who who mm-hmm. was who was who was playing the race card who was I know but who was doing that and so um, I think I can't remember who said it but it's like um, if you haven't had a if you haven't had a really open and honest conversation about race with your black friend, you don't have a black friend. You have a black acquaintance, and kind of like that <laughs> level of like, of like, of like comfortability that you have to have to have those conversations. I think is really important. So that yeah. would be my advice. <laughs> huh? um, and like I said, I've, okay. I've I've come to you for that advice in the past because I, I don't remember if you remember it, but a couple of years ago I wrote a script where I, I I had a black character just because I just didn't want to have a completely white cast. I just, I wanted to add something a little different. And I, uh, I had a scene that, because it, it took place in the, it took place in the seventies in the, uh, uh, the rural South. And I was like, I feel like I told, I think I told you, it's like, I feel like if I don't comment on it it's somehow worse than than if i did it poor like i don't know i, I had some thought process in my mind it's like I, it's in the rural south and i've got a, a black character in a primarily white southern area it's like yeah you know, like, I, I feel that. like something there needs to be some tension without it being explicitly like racist and you gave me some suggestions on what to do and it's something that i'm probably going to come back to you later t- since i'm reworking on that script now um come back to you for it and i think i remember you telling me that um you thought it was a good exercise for me because it's something it, to get out of my comfort zone yeah yeah and i mean and i mean like yeah, it'd, yeah it'd be very easy to just make that character white and just not deal with it but i i wanted to kind of challenge myself a little bit right right yeah and i think that when you have i mean i mean moonlight is such a good example of that about like i i think i mentioned earlier about your um, there's these, there's definitely racist, um, s- systems that impact the lives of the characters, whether it's the war on poverty, um, the war on crime, um, um, there's bigger structures, um, um, school to prison pipeline, um, a lot of different things that impact the film, but it's not explicitly stated, like, why, like, it's, it's demonstrated through the film and you don't have to have a white kind of racist character um, to show the impacts of racism, um, in my opinion, Um, um, if you want to, or to show that because for sometimes it's like when you have that character um, in my, um, in my opinion, when you have that blatantly, racist or homophobic or problematic or sexist or problematic character um it can do um yes it can do some things to the story by 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 explicitly showing 
those things, but then at the same time for the audience, it kind of reduces, it can reduce racism or sexism or or homophobia to that, to that type of person. It's like, I don't, it's like, oh, that's what a racist looks like. That's not, that's how racism is. That's how sexism is. That's how homophobia is. Whereas you can, when you give it more nuance and like, look at like how it inexplicitly, I think that that's where you can kind of get to like how for a lot of people it's actually felt because I think like Barry Jenkins was, I know, I know, like was talking about like, he didn't really interact or meet another white person until he was in college, which like you, you try to wrap your head around that. And like, I'm, mm-hmm. and it's like, how is that like, possible but then you think about it and then you're like yeah in some parts of the united states like there's like there's that level of uh, of of separation and that level of 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 um racial um racial like like liberty city like where he sets the film like you see like you watch the film and there's very few like there's no white speaking actors and then there's only a few mm-hmm. times where you actually see white people i think like the like it's like in off in the distance at the rehab center in Atlanta, and then inside the diner, there's like some lighter skin like women um, who are also at the diner. But like really, that's the only time when you see these not these non-black characters, which I think is like so like it's like but it's like so when you're thinking about that and like you wouldn't go like oh there's okay so it's a black film and there's black people it's a black community but. Oh, so since there was no explicitly racist white person, racism had no part to play inside the film. I could see somebody saying that. Uh, I'm like, and mm-hmm. they're just like, oh, so there's not like, and but like, I think that when you have a more nuanced view of what racism and how it manifests inside society, or sexism, or homophobia, or or xenophobia, or um, you can kind of see it played out inside the characters' lives in ways that aren't necessarily explicit, which I feel like when white act when when um non-black people definitely try to tell black stories, they lean so heavily on the explicit. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that and that, and that was a piece yeah. of advice you gave me, which, you know, the draft that I showed you at the time, I didn't go explicit at all because um I didn't want to. Uh, you commended me for, you know, and you gave me suggestions on how to make, how to do it better, but you commended me on just little nuanced things that I was trying to do without it being, you know, dropping the N word or anything crazy like that. Yeah. I think you told me, you jokingly told me that it's like you, in this one scene, you handled race better than the help did in the entire run. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Oh my gosh. And I mean, there is a place to, to have those more explicit um, um, aspects of, of marginalization and oppression. I think that you definitely see that in Moonlight with, with the bully and um, I'm in the name calling and just like that question about like when he comes to, when he comes to Juan and like, it's not like some abstract um, thing that Little is asking about, about homophobia in the society. He's like, what is a faggot? He's like asking like a very mm-hmm. particular specific question, um, um, and so I think that there is a place for that. But but at the same time, it's like I feel like when you only 
when like it's like most of the lives i mean because like when you capture somebody on film or when you're trying to tell like a life story at least like i think like that there's this whole extra like that's only a slice of what you're shown it's like and mo for most people like when you think about it it's like okay so when you're only given like that much airtime and like 90 percent of the time they're dealing with like that explicit oppression it doesn't it's I mean, I, I mean, I mean, for me, it's it's just not, um, it just doesn't reflect reality because there's so many of those quiet moments where, like, yeah, you're living in this society inside this world, but you might not, like, just because you weren't called a slur that week doesn't mean you're not living in that in that in that oppressive like like inside of society. Like, just because it doesn't show up in that in every single moment of your life doesn't mean that it's not there. Um, kind of thing so yeah yeah i think uh that was great honestly <laughs> i appreciate you uh answering uh, uh help, give me a heartfelt response to a, uh, a rather big question that I just dropped on you out of nowhere <laughs> uh was there anything else before we wrap up that you want to talk about with um about moonlight oh gosh I mean, I mean, I could talk about this. Film we talked for, about a lot. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I could talk about this film um, forever. I mean, and um, yeah, I would just encourage people to keep up with with um, with um, Terrell McCraney um, and Barry Jenkins. I, well, I mean, this was his, this was Barry Jenkins' sophomore feature film that he that he made eight years after his first um, after his first film. Um, and then his third film was based off of um, James Baldwin's novel, um, If Beale Street Would If Beale Street Could Talk, talk which could is... Talk. It's actually on Hulu right yeah. now, and I've not seen it, so I was going to watch it this yeah, week. Yeah, it's a very... It's um, it's um, everything that I said, now, like, like, well, like, expect expect a different film, but you'll see some of the... It's it's a very different film, but it's definitely still Barry Jenkins, Um and then, um, and then with Terrell McCraney, I mean, he, I mean, I mean, he's um, um, he created a um a series on Oprah's network called called him David Makes Man, um, which is really which is really great television. Um, if you get a chance to watch it, it's um, it's set inside a, still inside like um. Um, um, the projects in that, um, in that Florida, um, inside, uh, inside the projects inside, um, inside Florida, but, um, it definitely, it deals with masculinity and kind of the things that, that like, um, it's, um, it's another aspect of his, um, other aspects of his experience that didn't show up inside Moonlight, um, just because it's, it's like, I think that one, one of the critics, uh, like some of the critics was that, um, the depiction of of queer sexuality that there aren't any explicitly like transgender or gender nonconforming char characters inside Moonlight, um, mm -hmm. um, and that you don't really get to see that diversity of um, um, of sexual identity, which I think that he tackles in David Meets Man. Um, um, if you watch that, and then. And then he has all of his plays that he's written where he deals with so many other things, which, which personally I need to, I want to see like more, I want to read and see more of, um, more of his work. Um, he also wrote a movie last year. Oh yeah. High Flying uh, Bird. Yeah. Yeah. Was, directed by Steven Soderbergh. It's on Netflix. Currently. Yeah. I still have Apparently not seen all that shot yet, on an iPhone. But it's, um, but it's, 
Right, right, but it's um, Soderbergh who directed that, mm-hmm. which is which is yeah. which is pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm kind of curious. Like after having seen Moonlight and seen and seen uh, Terrell McCraney through the prism of Barry Jenkins, to see the same a similar voice through the perspective of Steven Soderbergh. Yeah interesting i'm i'm, I'm kind of curious it's on netflix interesting oh, that's i'm just gonna keep saying interesting because like it popped up and i was like yeah <laughs> i was like it was like a, a a movie about the nba lockout directed by steven soderberg right shot right. on an iphone written by the the inspiration behind moonlight i'm like <laughs> it's like that's it's interesting that's all i have that's all i've got is interesting <laughs> Oh, there was one other thing that I wanted to mention, which was which was What's um, that? was when um, so I went down to New Orleans um, in 2018. Um, and I, oh, um, I meant to bring this up, Dan. Yeah, it. yeah, and I was at a coffee shop, and um, and um, I was just sitting there like on my computer because I was there for a conference and I was working on some stuff. I found this like small co- coffee shop um, in New Orleans, and I was like, okay, so like, let's read this and stuff, and then I'm like. I, I look at this man who's, like, sitting, like, across the way. He's just sitting, like, on his tablet, just, like, sitting there and just working on his tablet. And I'm like, God, he looks he looks so familiar. Looks so freaking familiar. But, like, I couldn't put my finger on it. And, like, I'm like, who, who is that? And then he goes um, he goes up to get his coffee. And um, and the barista, like, looks at the coffee and, coffee and it's like, Mr. Ali. And then she hands it to him, and then I literally flip out because it was Mahershala Ali, and like, and then like I like went and like so I'm like looking at my thing, and I'm like, oh snap, he's like right like right now he's shooting, um, or he's just finished with the shooting of um his season of True Detective, so of course he would be inside the South, of course they're probably using yep. locations in Louisiana for that, um. And then so I think it was like maybe like thirty minutes it took me to like build up the courage to like pretend to like go get a napkin so that I could like gracefully like walk over to his I know but to his table. Um, what did you say uh, to him? Um, yeah, I was just like I was just like hello, Mr. Ali. Um, um, I just wanted to say um, um, I appreciate so much of your work. Um, I hope I wish you the best of luck. Um, I'm with. I'm um, with um, True Detective, and I um, and I really loved your performance inside Moonlight. And then he asked me my my name, and he shook my hand. And then like I just kind of like went back to my table and just like sat down and stuff. And then literally like he was still there for like another like hour and a half, and nobody else came up to him. Nobody else recognized what? him. And that was literally like an Oscar winner, an Oscar winner. And like nobody like there were people who walked past him, all this stuff. And I'm just like. I was floored, and I was like, "How can nobody know who this man is?" But he was like so nonchalant about it, like he was just sitting in this coffee shop, and so, <laughs> like that—that—that that, that is legitimately insane to me. Um, however, I—I I, I will say, like I've—I've I've seen him. He was one of those 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 faces that I knew for the longest time, and like an actor that I knew, because um, he 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 would pop up in so much stuff. Yeah, and he was mm-hmm. always really good, and I feel like he he came on everyone's radar or at least i thought when moonlight came out apparently not everyone in new orleans did who <laughs> right, was. Right. um 
But I also need to give uh, give him a shout out for uh, there's a show on Hulu that I've been into called Rami. Oh yes, yes, yes. He's, uh, he's... from uh. Rami Youssef, the, uh, the 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 comedian. That's it's really fascinating because it's about American Muslims and um, an American Muslim who's who's who grew growing up in New Jersey and dealing with that systematic racism and that idea of pop culture of them constantly being, you know, Muslims are, are usually the bad guy and dealing with his own faith. And in season two, Mahershala Ali actually plays a Muslim sheikh. Mm. Um, uh, and uh, he is phenomenal in the show. And I'm really hoping a season three comes so I can see what they do with it next. Um, but I, I tell everyone, if, if you, if, if you, to every, I tell everyone to check out Rami, but I say if you watch it, since the show kind of focuses on a different character for e- almost every episode, as like watch the first four episodes. If you're not sold after their episode Strawberries, <laughs> then fine. But I, um, the episode's actually about young Rami on September 11th, and um, his it's he's he's young and. You know, his friends are all talking about um, masturbation and it, it kind of becomes how he develops a phobia of masturbation because how it's tied into 9-11. It's, it's the way they explain wow. it in the show wow. is really interesting because his friend because his friends are always talking about masturbation and they're always like, how many times did you jack off last night and shit like that? And he always just lies and says he did it, but he never did. <laughs> and eventually gets to his friend, his point where his friends are like, you know, are you a terrorist? And he's like, no. He's like, well, you have to prove it to us, and you have to go in the woods and, and jack off or some shit like that. And he gets scared and runs off. <laughs> and then, like, he 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 has a dream that night of Osama bin Laden. And it's it's how like these ingrained phobias were tied to this sexual act. And it's is one of the best coming of age stories I've seen in but in it was like only a half hour. Oh damn. I yeah no so, it's that is on my like literal like shame list like I need to watch that. <laughs> I recommend Rami and so when you get to season two, uh, Mahershala is in it and he's great, mm-hmm. and he gets to kind of preach the about the Muslim faith and give people a perspective into it. So. Yeah, definitely on my list. Definitely on my list now. For sure. And actually, speak, funny enough, Hulu seems to have been very good to the cast of Moonlight because Ashton Sanders is also <laughs> in the TV show about the Wu-Tang Clan, which is on Hulu. <laughs> no. I watch a lot of Hulu. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, the cast that they, I mean, for an indie film that was only made on a $1.5 million budget, I mean, the amount of talent. And then, and then like, see, like, Gerald Jerome with his success with, like, When They See Us. Um, mm-hmm. Ava DuVernay's film, and um, and um, Janelle Monet, um, with her acting career. I mean, I mean, yeah, it's like, and then, um, yeah, a lot, a lot of people to look out for for the future for sure. Yeah, and then like the the cinematographer, he's he's done stuff that I've I've seen and I've liked, and he's gone on to do big thing. Like, have you heard of the Kevin Smith movie Tusk? Mm. He shot that before he shot Moonlight. Oh. 
Okay, okay. Like, how did the guy who made the Walrus movie with <laughs> Kevin Smith, like, I, he must have had an amazing pitch to the people at Moonlight. It's well, like, and I, 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 don't get me wrong, the way the tusk is shot is actually really gorgeous, yeah. but it's kind of interesting to see the range. Well, I think that the cinematographer is a longtime friend of Barry Jenkins from film school, if I'm... I'm okay. If I, I could be corrected on that, but I, but I, I believe I heard that mentioned so i so i think that they were like because he meant oh yeah because it was mentioned um when they were when somebody asked about the lighting of black characters and like they're like how did you um i mean just like uh like it was great for the team and then um and then barry jenkins was like oh yeah that was um that was lax and then like yeah he's a white guy but like but like he's worked with me enough and he knows me long enough that he's got to get it right <laughs> and like you better like shoot them in the right light <laughs> That's great. Um, but no, I think that's uh that's everything that I have. We've got we you know we got almost a two and a half hours I know, almost right? I was, I, out of moonlight. I and honestly, that. like if I would have done because I just watched it yesterday. Yeah. So I did all this preparation since watching it yesterday to now. If I would have if I would have done more preparation, I probably could have gotten more out of it. <laughs> no, no, but no, but thanks for having me on. Um it's great to be able to um to be able to talk about this film but it's better that i get to hang out with you for another two hours exactly so. exactly <laughs> this this was great and if if uh if there's any other films that you ever want to discuss it doesn't have to be black featured films like i said i just i just felt with with everything going on in the world it would be a crime for me not to try to shed the light on some films that you know use my small platform to and i'm sure it's like moonlight doesn't need the help but i'm sure there's people who are probably listening to my podcast who didn't know if they'd enjoy the film and maybe didn't uh, didn't want to see it and maybe who will now right. but then also give someone like yourself uh you know a place to speak yeah yeah because like i said you are a film lover who only really ever talks about film to me and our <laughs> other mutual friends right right no that is true that is true so i wanted to use my small platform to do something right right <laughs> But we, we could we could talk about the time that we watched paranormal paranormal activity in your parents' basement and you got scared and went upstairs and oh, didn't God. watch the rest of the movie with us. <laughs> well, that's the thing, Michael. I mean, it's um it's been this long relationship with me like being very um um I'm like one of my best friends like loves and directs horror films and I'm scared of like most horror films. <laughs> it's been my goal it's been my goal to make a horror film one day jordan that has got enough going on in it that even if you're scared you'll appreciate it <laughs> that's my hope that's my hope well we can't have it well we we sold well we sold my my house well my child had a house so we can't watch it in the basement because that would be full circle. But maybe whoever's living there will will let us down there. We'll go knock a, on their door for a couple of minutes. Yeah, <laughs> to watch. We'll that go film. knock on their door. Maybe maybe by that point I'll be a famous director and be like, "Can we just hang out in your basement for like? like we'll bring our own TV and everything." <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Jordan, for uh, like I said, giving me two and a half hours of your time and it probably a little bit more because I had technical difficulties before we signed on and. Uh, I really hope we could do this again sometime soon. Oh yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Tell Amanda I say I say hello and send my love. 
I will. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Byers, and is more often than not edited by Michael Byers. Any TV or YouTube versions of the show to date have been edited by Nick Richards, Tyler Hanna, or Dina Volani. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals with narration from Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed, and our new kick-ass logo was designed by Amanda Byers. A special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors at Mill Creek Entertainment and Vinegar Syndrome. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links to all these tremendous folks, as well as the show, in the description below. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe.